Chapter 5 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 5 The Eighteenth of Brumaire. French Policy and Disasters. Siez. Novi and Zurich, Landing of Bonaparte, His Attitude, Episode with Josephine, Conspiracy, Bonaparte Appointed to Command Troops in Paris, Fall of the Directoire. The peace signed at Campo Formio did not prove of long duration, for at the very time that Bonaparte was sailing for Egypt, the Directoire had proved its incapacity by reversing his Italian policy and giving provocation to the powers. During the course of the Italian campaign, Bonaparte had shown an accommodating spirit in his relations with the two southern Italian states, the papacy and the kingdom of Naples. He did not wish to weaken himself by carrying on military operations in such an eccentric direction nor would he associate himself too closely with the extreme anti-religious policy of the Directoire. But while the Egyptian expedition was preparing, and after its departure, the French government successively quarreled with and occupied both Rome and Naples, and there promoted the establishment of republics. The jealousy of Austria and Russia was at once kindled, and these two powers took up arms. In the spring of 1799, the French were several times defeated in northern Italy by Suvarov, while the Austrians threatened the Rhine and an Anglo-Russian army prepared to operate from Holland. This military failure was not all, however, for the Directoire was as feeble and unsuccessful at home as abroad. In 1798, France became bankrupt. In the spring of 1799, the Jacobin party, representing what was left of the terrorist element, was successful in the elections and secured nearly one-half of the seats in the Council of 500, Lower House. The government had neither money, nor administrative system, nor moral strength. France was overrun by lawlessness. Taxes were unpaid gold was hoarded and the only thing that prevented the republic from sinking was the general fear of a bourbon restoration nearly all men wanted to keep something of the revolution but so many political panaceas had already been exploded that there appeared little hope of agreement or salvation at this crisis in the early part of seventeen ninety nine an important group of moderate men anxious to save the republic by means of some administrative or constitutional reform, turned to that eminent statesman, Sillez, then French ambassador at Berlin. Sillez had been a prominent debater from the earliest days of the revolution, and had gained the reputation of being the greatest constitutional authority of France. By a prudent course, he had weathered the storms of Jacobinism, and now a convenient expurgation of the Directoire gave him a seat in that body, while the best men in the legislative and administrative field rallied to his support and looked to him to effect a constitutional reform 
that should give stability to the state. Seyez thought that to effect a change in the government, the support of the army was essential. Bonaparte was in Egypt, and the British cruisers intercepted all communications. Under these circumstances, Sillez decided that General Joubert's should be the arm to deal the necessary blow. But in the summer of 1799, the military fortunes of France had sunk so low that it was thought indispensable that Joubert should first retrieve something of the lost prestige. He was accordingly given all the troops that could be collected and sent into Italy to rally the dispirited remnants of the French army in that country and to bring the Austro-Russians to battle. From his anticipated victory, he was to return to Paris and help Siez reform the state. At Novi, on the 15th of August, one week before Bonaparte set sail from Alexandria, the two armies met. Suvarov was once more successful. Joubert was not only defeated, but killed. This blow placed Siez for the moment in a desperate position, and not only Siez, but France, for the German and Italian frontiers were now both uncovered. Only one French army, that of Massena in Switzerland, still held the field. For a few weeks after Novi, the Republic appeared doomed, and then, in the last days of September, Massena won a series of splendid successes in the neighborhood of Zurich. A thrill of hope ran through France once more, and just at that moment Bonaparte landed. It was an extraordinary coincidence of prevision, audacity, and chance. He had just caught the turn of the tide that carries on to fortune. The feeling that Bonaparte was the only man who could save the state was so universal that no sooner was his frigate at anchor than she was boarded by a mob of excited people who took not the slightest heed of quarantine regulations. The general and his companions landed and proceeded on their journey to Paris, every stop, every change of horses being the occasion of enthusiastic demonstrations in honor of the conqueror of Italy, of the victor of Aboukir. But Bonaparte knew enough of the necessities of the times, of the temper of France, not to pose as the ambitious general. Moreau, Joubert, Massena, Jordan, Auch, had shown themselves fine soldiers. But Bonaparte alone had closed a series of victories by forcing a peace. It was peace France now wanted, and it was the general who had presented the treaty of Campo Formio to the Directoire, who was now declaring to those who eagerly pressed about him that the government of France was driving her to ruin, but that he intended that peace should be obtained and that all classes of Frenchmen should enjoy its benefits. As a result of his Italian campaign, he declared, France had been left prosperous, victorious, and honored. He now found her bankrupt, defeated, and disgraced. He allowed it to be understood that either with or without the Directoire, he was prepared to save the country. Bonaparte's return to Paris was marked by an important incident in his relations with Josephine. Probably no great man was ever less influenced in a political sense by women, and for that reason there will be little said on that subject in this book, yet 
the incident we are now coming to must receive notice because it partly leads up to and explains events of the greatest importance that took place ten years later josephine bonaparte was beautiful and a woman of her period frivolous charming extravagant tender-hearted and perfectly lax in her morality bonaparte had loved her intensely fervently as the letters he wrote to her in the course of the italian campaign sufficiently disclose but when in egypt intercepted correspondence and the tittle-tattle of kind friends had revealed to him that he had ample cause for divorce josephine hurried from paris to meet her returning husband on the lyon road so as to place her version of affairs before him ere he should reach paris but the family feud between the bonapartes and the beauharnais was already in full force napoleon's brothers joseph and lucien who had now become important political personages in paris had determined to overthrow josephine so that their influence might predominate with their brother they also hastened to meet him and succeeded in doing so whereas josephine failed for several days after his return to his little house in the rue chanterain of which the name had been changed to rue de la victoire bonaparte refused to see his wife finally her lamentations and entreaties with those of her two children eugene and hortense together with the feeling that an action for divorce would be impolitic at such a crisis prevailed with napoleon and a reconciliation took place the really important question was how and by what means could a change of government giving power to bonaparte be effected there were several ready-formed parties anxious to win his support but on his first arrival he practically declined all overtures even those of his own brothers declaring firmly that he belonged to no party that he was in favor of no party but that he was for all good frenchmen to whatever party they belonged in fact he would follow no man but wanted all men to follow him the directoire was too divided and impotent to take notice of the open challenge involved in the conduct of the corsican general he was in a sense a deserter from his army he had come from a plague-stricken port and had violated the quarantine regulations he openly impugned the conduct and threatened the existence of the government yet the directoire dared not order his arrest for his moral strength was far greater than theirs public opinion saw in him the only man in france of sufficient ability and of sufficient strength of character to draw the country from the quagmire in which it was sinking probably bonaparte's first intention was to make use of barras with whom he had so effectively cooperated in crushing the rising of vendemiere seventeen ninety five barras was still a member of the directoire but was now too discredited with the best section of public opinion to be of any political utility between sieyes and bonaparte there was at first much coolness but it was clear to many that in their cooperation was the only hope of effecting something useful a party in which talleyrand the minister for foreign affairs cambacerès lucien and joseph bonaparte were active succeeded in bringing the two men together from that moment 
the scheme for effecting a revolution proceeded fast the precise form that should be given to the new constitution was for the present left undetermined what the conspirators were agreed on was that the executive power of the republic must be strengthened and that a committee of three should hold it bonaparte sillez and a colleague who followed his lead roger ducot few were let into the secret but there was a vast tacit conspiracy supporting bonaparte and sillez that placed at their beck and call a large number of men in the legislative bodies especially in the council of ancients few of them knew exactly what was intended but most of them were prepared to take up any lead shown them the cue was soon given bonaparte had since his return received many applications to review various bodies of troops quartered in the capital but had deferred answering on the night of the seventeenth of brumaire november eighth seventeen ninety nine he accepted all these invitations and fixed the following morning for the inspection asking each commanding officer to march his troops to the garden of the tuileries he also wrote personal letters inviting every officer of note in paris to call at his house in the rue de la victoire at an early hour of the morning during the course of the night the secretaries of the council of ancients whose support had been secured by the bonaparte sillez faction wrote and dispatched messages convening the members to a morning session on the eighteenth of brumaire in a few cases where opposition might be expected these messages were either not sent or failed to reach their destination early in the morning a large assemblage of officers in full uniform gathered in the rue de la victoire at the sight of their numbers all realized that the long-expected hour had come though how the change in government was to be effected none knew all however save general bernadotte whose sympathies were with the jacobin party followed bonaparte who led them in a body to the tuileries where the council of ancients was already in session that assembly on the motion of one of the conspirators and in perfect accord with the terms of the existing constitution declared paris to be in a condition threatening to the security of the state decreed that both the upper and lower house should suspend their sessions and adjourn to st cloud on the nineteenth and that general bonaparte should assume command of all the troops quartered in and near paris the general was now introduced and harangued the legislators declaring that he would support them and save the republic he then proceeded to the gardens where the troops were assembled and passed them in review being at all points greeted with tremendous enthusiasm while a packed meeting of the council of ancients was thus placing the power of the sword in bonaparte's hands the directoire was rapidly disintegrating as had been preconcerted sillez and roger ducot made their appearance before the council of ancients and declared that they resigned their functions barras hesitated but on pressure of some private nature being put on him by talleyrand he decided to make a virtue of necessity and signed his resignation this left only two out of the five directors in office moulin and goyer their influence was slight and did not affect the crisis 
but there was a third body in the state one in which the jacobins were strong and from which trouble might not unreasonably be anticipated the council of five hundred in the enthusiasm created by the return of bonaparte from egypt that assembly had elected his brother lucien president and lucien was now to play an almost decisive part the five hundred were to assemble at noon that day in the ordinary course of business no sooner had they done so than lucien declining to listen to any motion declared the session adjourned till the following day at st cloud according to the terms of the perfectly constitutional decree issued by the ancients to this ruling the members perforce submitted and thus every item of the day's program had passed off without a hitch all paris appeared to rejoice at the events that had occurred and unique fact in the history of revolutions the government stocks rose in the course of the day from eleven and one quarter to twelve and three quarters but the revolution was only half accomplished and the nineteenth of brumaire proved as stormy as the eighteenth had been peaceful End of chapter five recording by linda johnson